Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. When I worked as a banker in the late 1980s, private equity, at least in Britain, was still a cottage industry and most of what it did was buying up the unwanted divisions of large conglomerate companies. Now, of course, it's a giant global industry, not just doing those buyouts, that's buying up companies largely financed by debt. Private equity itself lends to companies these days and invests in specialist areas such as infrastructure and property. Now, we recently did a podcast with an American fund manager, Dan Rasmussen, who believes that private equity has turned into a bubble driven by low interest rates and rising stock market valuations. This, Dan thinks, will eventually burst, leaving a lot of wreckage behind. And and if you haven't listened to that podcast, do go and give it a listen. We are now, of course, in a world where interest rates are climbing and valuations are going down. So in the interests of balance, we thought we'd invite on Sachin Kajuri, a former partner of Apollo, one of the world's largest buyout groups, who recently wrote a book called Two and Twenty, Why the Masters of Private Equity Always Win. Now, Sachin takes an opposite view to Dan. He thinks, broadly, that private equity companies have pioneered a a superior form of investing and ownership, and that far from collapsing, they're going to become an even more dominant part of our economies in future. It's only fair to say that I reviewed 2 and 20 in the Financial Times, where I said that it was a book that seemed to be aimed mainly at young hopefuls who wanted to work in private equity, and that thus it preached to the already converted. So it's very sporting of you, Sachin, to come on the podcast to debate some of these issues. So welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great. So I just wanted to start by going back to one of the more striking lines in 2 and 20, where you say at one point, in private equity, capitalism has perfected a version of the virtuous circle. Now, that's quite a claim. And I just wonder what you meant by that. So the book is about the psychology of winning at the best firms. It's not about the whole industry any more than writing the FT is not about all of journalism or being a politician doesn't represent all politicians. My experience at good private equity firms is that they have created something of a virtuous circle. That's why they keep growing. The good performers, the ones that can beat the market, they attract more assets under management only because they perform. If they didn't perform consistently, if they could not beat the market, and I mean the public market benchmarks, easy benchmarks for most people to understand, if they cannot continue to provide a greater unit of return per unit of risk they take on, they would not get repeat business, that sticky money, that loyalty, that repeat subscription from their investors. When they get that, those assets under management, when they grow, they tend to attract better and better people who work there. So it used to be that in private equity, you'd find a lot of people who used to be bankers and they would join private equity firms after a few years in investment banking. And they probably went to a prestigious university in the Ivy League or Oxford and Cambridge or one of the other great universities around the world. It's a lot more diverse now. You get people joining who have a background in life sciences, who have a background in infrastructure, who have a background in credit They actually could have worked for banks at quite a senior level, but now think that their better home, 
to develop their business is in a private markets firm, a private equity firm that does multiple strategies. And so you find better people join. As better people join over time, and it's a slow process, they will tend to continue to outperform. And so the circle goes round. The other part of this is what's happening at the client. And remember, the client is the pension fund investor or the sovereign wealth fund or the high net worth individual or family, or increasingly, it's going into retail. The client has an increasing need for a higher return in their portfolio because the rest of their portfolio is not giving them the investment return they need to service their obligations. And so that's really the positive dynamic I think you get at the best private equity firms. Now, this is a great uh, sales pitch, I have to say, but I am hugely sceptical about the ability of any investment organization to produce consistent above-average returns with one or two very extreme exceptions. They will revert to the norm over time. Insofar as outsiders are allowed to see what's going on, because a lot of the, the information is not public information, so you can't really tell what they're up to. I agree with that. The first thing is it's very hard for us as outsiders really to form that much of a view about what's going on within the industry between one firm and another because most of the data that's available to the outside world is aggregate data and if you look at that aggregate data what you can conclude is returns which used to be you know we're talking after fees here we can come back to that after fees were two or three percentage points higher than the public markets have actually trended pretty much to be in line in more recent years. Now, you may argue, well, that's irrelevant because you're bundling in a whole bunch of poor-performing firms and funds, and we're just look- I'm just looking at the very best ones. But that's all we can really look at. And, and also, I'd just take issue slightly with the idea that one should disaggregate in the way you are doing. Because I think private equity is clearly a big feature and has all sorts of of implications for the way businesses are run and so forth. Saying, well, you should just focus on the very best ones is like saying you should judge the stock market not on what it does, the stock market index, but on the performance of a few top performing stocks. So, Neil, your comment about, you know, the skepticism of certain firms to able to, you know, consistently outperform. The basic answer to that is time will tell. Whichever benchmark you use, there are a number of firms that are able to perform very, very well. I don't know of people who advocate that all private equity is great in the same way that people don't say, put all of your eggs in the stock market. But I think the premise of what you're saying, Neil, I kind of disagree with it. I think it's a little bit, you know, one of those misconceptions where you're setting it up as, well, private equity is saying it's better than everything else. No, I don't think it can be better than everything else. I mean, that's not what's at debate. So it's not what I said, that you're not trying to paraphrase what I said, are you? I don't think it's a competition between whether one form of investing is superior or another form of investing is inferior. You need to have a balanced portfolio. And as your portfolio hopefully grows, and the needs hopefully grow, because you have more obligations, you have more investment needs, you have more money to put to work, I think more people will look at active management as opposed to just passive management. And within active management, I think that a number of private investment firms, private equity firms, have been able to perform very well over long periods of time. You know, can you say that they'll always be able to do that? No, but they have. And the point of the book, for example... <laughs> Hang on, yes, but before you leave that point, 
if you have a large number of firms doing this, then there will be some who have performed well over a long period. Whether it's any guide to the future, of course, is another matter entirely. But statistically, you will get some who have shown considerable outperformance over a long period. Yeah, and we're, say, we're, saying the, we're saying the same thing, which is the point of the book is to try to help people understand because it's a people business. It's not automated like passive investing. A lot of passive investing is. Why in your book you do not have any concrete examples rather than just theoretical ones? They're not theoretical. In many industries, you find that you cannot breach certain rules of confidentiality. And what's important is not necessarily whether the deal was based in Milan or uh, in Manhattan or wherever, or whether it was a biscuit company or it was a cookie company or what kind of company it was. What's important is the lesson and the story that the deal actually teaches. And what we're very upfront about, right up front of the book, is we say, look, we cannot breach confidentiality. So what we'll do, these are real deals, they're all real deals, but we have to change details because we've got to protect a lot of information. But what's important is the story. And there are plenty of stories in the book where deals go wrong. What's important is the story. Right. But what that does show, which is, is a consistent bugbear of mine, is the fact that it's an incredibly secretive business. And it is also a 10 trillion one. So it's, it's not a cottage industry as it was in the 1980s. It's actually a very significant part of the economy. But one of the other points which I want to come to in your book is you talk about incentives. Are they over-rewarded for what they do? And you say, no, absolutely clear. You say, no, they are really talented people and they earn their returns. I suppose what I would say is it's very hard to know whether that is true unless we really know what's going on under the hood. Now, the British Venture Capital Association a few years ago did a study and they came to the conclusion, which is very interesting. They said roughly a third of the returns come from leverage. A roughly a third came from beta, so the st- performance of the underlying stock market, and about a third came from a residual, which was a bunch of things from buying low. So, well, this is a, these are the people who are supposedly know the facts. They, well, they, the they come from buying low, selling high, operational improvements, and so forth. So that absolutely explains why everyone wants to go and work in this industry, because they're all getting absolutely massively over-rewarded. But it doesn't explain that they're adding very much to the economy. You know, 20% of zero profit for your investors is zero. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't made any cash profit, remember, this is not a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. You not, do get the 2%, which it's is not, a quite it's not, decent thing to let, be going on with. Let, let's, let's get, <laughs> let's on, to that. That let's get on to that in a second. <laughs> park it not because it's not important. Park it because let's deal with the, the much bigger number. 20% of zero is zero. If you are on a bunch of deals, whether you get paid deal by deal or you're incentivized across the whole fund and none of your deals make money, and the fund doesn't make any profit for your pension fund investor or whoever your investors are, you get no carried interest because you've made no money. Now, how likely are you as a group of people to get money back to you as investors the next time you raise money? Your track record will be awful. And it's cash in, cash out. It's not a paper gain. There's no changing watermarks or so on. You hand over 100 million pounds or dollars or euros and you get back 200 million And let's say that's after they've taken a cut, which is, let's say, a 20% cut, or depending on the strategy of the firm, could be less, could be more, but often it's less as well, could be 15%. So they've actually made real cash profit for you. I haven't seen the study you're talking about. Internally, people talk about maybe roughly a third, and you've seen a lot of industry figures say this kind of thing in public, 
Maybe roughly a third comes from operational improvements. In other words, the business is performing better on things like revenue, size, profit, growth, investment, etc. Maybe a third is the way the capital structure works. So you've got debt, which provides certain benefits, certain risks. And maybe a third is the way you enter and the way you exit. So the price at which you pay, if you pay a particularly good price, a smart price, or what I like to call a kind of smart bargain for a good business, and whether you've exited smartly. You know, you buy a house, you wait for the top of the market, you sell the house at the top of the market, not the bottom of the market. Now, if the firm consistently doesn't perform that well, and you don't make that much, then you're going to ask yourself the next time they're raising a fund whether you want to recommit. But I think a lot of these people who ultimately make the decisions about where to invest these pension funds are not really experts in their fields. And the idea that they can give it to somebody else is a great comfort to them if they can convince themselves that they will do better than the markets, then so much the better. But they are keen to be persuaded because a lot of the trustees, certainly the trustees, will not be experts and they have these huge sums of money which they have to invest uh, on behalf of the pensioners. They are looking for the sort of comfort blanket that private equity can provide. Being a trustee or an investment manager at a pension fund is a very transparent job. It's a very transparent industry. If you are making bad decisions, those decisions will be very public as soon as the results of that pension fund are published. It's not my experience that pension funds make decisions which are, you know, just the easy decision to make. You know, I've been in a lot of fundraising meetings where they ask, you know, tough questions and they try to back firms that they really believe in because they're really backing people that they believe in. One of the biggest questions that institutional investors have about private equity firms is what's happening with the people? What's happening with the leadership? What's happening with the governance? I noticed this person joined, this person left. You started this new strategy. Who's going to run it? How can you use the same people when actually it's something slightly different than you've been doing before? So I've seen actually the opposite, which is scrutiny. But that's not to say that I'm sure that mistakes are made or you know there might be some of that going on. Mm. Okay, so so I want to touch on another thing, which, which is actually related to this, to do with pension funds. Because I have to say one of the things which I, as somebody who's occasionally looked at this industry have marveled over it for many years is the extent to which pension funds pile in. Because as you've observed, this is an enormous industry, multi-trillion industry, and not all that money. Quite a lot is going to Blackstone and co, but it's also going to other firms as well. And yet, as I said before, the returns are not that great relative to the public markets. And the pension funds continue to pay very high fees to get that service. Now, one of the thoughts I had was that actually what is going on here is a sort of regulatory arbitrage, which is the pension funds don't like volatility for exactly the reason, and you say it in the book, you say pension funds don't like it, they don't like having to report up and down funds. What private equity does, because it locks up your money in an illiquid structure for a period of time, is it offers you protection from that volatility. And that is a service, I suppose, which you could argue that some pension fund trustees would be prepared to pay for. The real question I have about that is whether that volatility is really suppressed, given that private equity firms largely invest in small to medium-sized companies, which they then leverage, which would imply that they ought to be more volatile than the market, not less. And is it not the case that the real suppression of volatility comes from the fact that the 
accountants, the auditors who are hired to value these firms, basically are very obediently continue to value them roughly at what was, pay, what was paid for them and therefore protect the private equity funds from the volatility which is really there. And there's one piece of evidence, which is a live piece of evidence, I suppose, which is what was going on at Tiger Global, which was a company that invested in listed tech stocks and unlisted tech stocks through a sort of private equity part of its business. Whereas the tech stocks, the listed tech stocks it is invested in, have fallen by about 60% this year, basically the unlisted holdings sort of not really moved very much. And people have been criticizing Tiger Global and said, well, what's the story here? How can it be that these two tech businesses, they, they can't be that different. One of them is getting an absolute caning and the leveraged private ones are holding their value. So number one, I don't think that a selling point of private equity is invest in us because we are less volatile and therefore you can report less volatility. I don't think that at all. You I just say it in your book. You I, say you say no, you I, say it's one of the services you talk about is you say we invest brilliantly well and the and the investments we make amazingly not as volatile as the stock market. So and that's the service that pension funds it's like. Not, that's not the service. The service is put capital in our hands and we will return a good risk return outcome for you and your investors. An advantage of an unlisted investment is that it doesn't have the day-to-day -day volatility or even second-to-second -second volatility of a listed investment. That doesn't mean it's a selling point. The point is the performance, and one of the other advantages is that you don't get in private equity the same volatility as you would in the public markets, which has a number of benefits, okay? And again, it's not a competition. It's not about put about all your eggs in one basket. It's not saying put all your money in private markets or public markets. It's about in a balanced portfolio, should you be putting some of your allocation into unlisted investments because they give you a good risk return outcome? And I think if you can pick the right firms and funds, the answer to that is yes, you should consider it. So number two, the major firms do adjust quite significantly mark-to-market valuations per quarter. Okay, so through COVID, through this year, there have been pretty significant adjustment in valuations. Sometimes they can be up or down 10, 20, 30%. Why are they not done every second? Because they're unlisted. But the major firms do have this mark-to-market change. So you will see significant changes in portfolio value. And if they're not doing well, or if, for example, it just happens to be a very volatile time, for example, suddenly there's a one in a hundred year pandemic, or suddenly there's a war in Ukraine, or there's a drastic change in the macro environment, you will see big changes in valuation quarter to quarter. The advantage is that you don't need to sell tomorrow. You can hold on until times are better. You can work on that portfolio and exit at a more opportune time. Yeah, now I understand that. And uh, that obviously is a recipe for avoiding market panics. But it's also, it's also something where the investor, given that they are locking up their capital, should expect a significantly higher rate of return than the one that the industry delivers. There should be a premium for having your money locked up relative to money you can take out straight away. And therefore, what we look at in the book is the firms that are able to provide that premium over the public markets. If you're putting money into an unlisted investment and you're getting a worse outcome 
than if you just invested in an ETF or some other cheap public investment strategy where you're paying a few basis points of fees in management fees and no performance fee, then you're going to wonder after a while why you're doing it. But hopefully you have a bit of education, a bit of smarts, a bit of good guidance to be able to put money into firms and funds where you are getting compensated for that money being locked up. And that's and really what we focus on. You feel much cleverer as a result of doing this because you have decided that these people are very clever. So rather than putting it into an ETF, we're going to give it to these people who are masters of the universe. In your book, you talk about the management fee, which Neil mentioned earlier, the 2%, and how that used to cover costs. And because of the massive expansion of all these firms and funds, it is now a substantial source of profit. So in 2019, I think Blackstone's in their accounts, they basically disclosed that they made a $500 million profit from the 2% management fee. Is it right that what is designed as a cost-covering measure should in itself become a a massive source of profit. One of the most important things to realize is that if you compare the private equity industry when it started to the industry today, private markets, it's like comparing an old Motorola brick phone to the latest iPhone. It's not even close. What these firms are doing today is quite different than they were doing when they first started. They're not just doing high-yield debt and buyouts. They're doing investing in all kinds of industries they have to invest and they have to grow. And because they're public, the big ones at least, they also have to return a profit to their shareholders. A lot of these firms are now available in certain indices. So if you buy an index, you can get the exposure to some of these firms' stock and even buy some of their debt in certain indices. And so as public firms, they're going to be for-profit public firms. So you're going to expect them to make a certain profit. The question is whether the scale of those management fees is appropriate relative to their size, relative to what they're doing. Yeah, but some of them are even selling off participations. In that situation... If I was an investor, I'd go, why am I paying this? But remember, you've got to differentiate between an investor in the firm and an investor in the funds. So one of the key questions people often ask is, if you've got some capital, is it better for you to buy stock in that private equity firm or is it better for you to put money in the funds? And of course, there's probably only one class of stock that you can buy if you can buy it. And there are probably, you know, 20, 30, maybe so more kind of question? funds. And the answer is, it depends on the firm. And there you've got to ask yourself whether the performance of the funds is strong enough to warrant your your dollar or your euro or well, your Presumably yen. once you list the manager... You leave them vulnerable to somebody coming along and bidding for them with private equity. It's it's a great idea. Um, often the ownership is still quite concentrated, and so we haven't seen but a hostile because it hasn't had long enough to be diffused. We, we haven't seen a hostile takeover of a private equity firm yet. That was a long time in finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton, and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.